Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game Productions. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts and star of this show. It's a day at the yard, common sense pitching with Wiley and Will. We've got Mark Wiley here and Will George. Special guest today. Um, we've been pushing to get this guy on for a long time, and we've had to go through his agent. Lots of lots of uh, red tape to get him, so buckle your seatbelts. But before we introduce our guest, I'm going to have Will George do that in a minute. Just want to give a special message to our audience here. At morning, 18,400 subscribers. We're on episode 195 now. Make sure you continue to download, listen, like, subscribe, rate, and review. We battle the analytics of the podcast world just like they do in Major League Baseball. If you keep doing that, we'll be able to provide you great content like Mark and Will do every week here on the show. Get us on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. I respond to one guest live every day on Facebook, and I get back to everybody privately. 413 questions this morning. I've got a a long drive this afternoon, so I'm going to get to that in the car. I will not be driving, so any officers that see me, I'm in the passenger seat. Um, Instagram or Twitter is another way you can get us. We're in 72 countries now, grassroots all the way to Major League Baseball front offices. So we've got the ear of the people, the ones that need to hear us. And all we're trying to do is build a better baseball IQ out there. And our audience always asked me to read this. They made this up, not me. They said, just be prepared to embrace the uncomfortable truths about baseball. Um, because as this program, like all of our other programs, just has no time for the comfortable lies. So we are going to hit you straight between the eyes on this show, like we do with all of our others. And with that, I'll pass it over to you, Will, to introduce our special guest today. Yeah, we're uh, we're excited to have uh, my godson, uh, Jonathan George, who is a baseball lifer, who uh, signed with the Cincinnati Reds, drafted out of high school in 2002. He played in the Reds and Rockies organization um, upon uh, his career ending after tearing his elbow with a uh, ligament damage. Uh, he got into scouting, which is uh, something that his dad, uh, my brother Roland, uh, was a former pitcher who got into scouting once he got out, as did I. And Jonathan now works for the Rangers, a baseball lifer who grew up around the ballpark when I was coaching in the minor leagues. That was their summer vacation every year to spend a homestand with me and Jonathan would get in uniform and be out on the field. He learned all the practical jokes and all the other things at the ballpark. And uh, we're excited to have him. And Jonathan, why don't you uh, kind of give us your title with the Rangers and what your job uh, entails to start with. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for the introduction there, Uncle Will. Um, So, Currently, I am a special assignment scout to player development with the Rangers, um, and essentially I go around and scout all of our minor league affiliates, and um, you know, I like to call it counterintelligence. You know, 29 other teams are scouting our system, um, you know, and you need to know your own players better than you know anybody else's players, uh, particularly when you're, you know, going to trade for major league talent, you're going to give up you know, minor league pieces um, and, you know, just trying to make sure that we're in a good spot to, to protect ourselves from, you know, not giving up the wrong guy or, you know, not uh, undervaluing anyone within our system. Um, so it's been, it's been a lot of fun to kind of transition from, you know, amateur scouting when I started, then pro scouting and scouting other organizations and now being able to scout our own players and, you know, at least be able to pass along some of the stuff that I see to, to people who can, you know, impact the careers of these players and, you know, get them on the right track. So it's been a lot of fun. Um, I think it's a unique role. I don't think there's a lot of organizations that do this. Um, but I think it's a very valuable, uh, role and very important to, to make sure you get your own players right. Well, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just want to follow up with that. When I first started with the Marlins, that was a big thing that David Dombrowski and Gary Hughes spoke about. Um, and I think the example that they used was uh, the Braves 
uh, traded Doyle Alexander to the Detroit Tigers. There were a list of players on that on that uh, deal that were available, and the Braves chose John Smoltz, and his name never should have been on that list. And the, the thing that we always talked about as an organization was the most important players to get right, evaluating, or your own, as Jonathan just highlighted. Jonathan, how, how big a part do you play in their development as well? Because you obviously have a keen eye as to where they are now and where they came from. And we talked about the trade aspect, but I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you're heavily involved with the player development staff as well um, and the minor league systems coaches to, to help the growth of each player individually and collectively. Talk talk on that a little bit. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I kind of liken it to my, to my four-year-old son. Um, obviously, I spend a lot of time on the road and you know, when I'm home in the off season, you know, my, my wife's cousin, my wife's sisters will come down. They don't see him very often. And, you know, they'll be like, Oh, Ben, you've gotten so big. And I'm like, he still looks like a midget to me. You know, I don't notice the growth. Right. Like, but when I'm gone during the spring and I come home after two, three weeks, a month out on the road, you see like differences in his face. You see that he's grown like, you know, so when you're in the day to day, it's very easy to kind of get caught up in, you know, and our coaches jobs are hard, right? Like you're trying to develop for the future, but you're also trying to make sure that you instill confidence in the pitcher today so that they're having success. And I think a lot of times when you're that close to the the situation, good or bad, mostly on the good side, honestly, is like you don't necessarily see the progress. You don't necessarily see, you know, a guy making a stride forward. I think like the really fun aspect of my job is being able to sit up in the stands. It's a different viewpoint than what the coaches have in the dugout. Excuse me. Um, you know, being able to see these guys basically once a month and you can start to see the slider getting better, the delivery cleaning up, whatever it might be. And being able to point that out to the coaches, um, you know, first and foremost, I don't coach players. Um, I just observe. And I let our coaches do that, but I definitely, you know, relay kind of what I'm seeing, um, you know, if there's any pitch tipping, if there's any, you know, differences in stances, uh, situational hitting, guys are falling into pattern, stuff like that. So the the fun part, obviously, is is being at the ballpark, being able to interact with the, with the staff, your own staff, not other team staffs that, you know, that was kind of the the vibe that you would get when you're covering another organization. Um, you know, but being able to have those conversations with our coaches and them being very open and receptive to kind of hearing a different viewpoint. Um, and I, and I say all the time, it, it's not that what I see is right or wrong. It's just from a different lens. It's from a different perspective and it's from a different seat in the house. And, you know, when you sit behind home plate, you have the whole field in front of you. Those guys have, you know, pitch counts to deal with, uh, you know, somebody, you know, the wrist is sort there, there's a lot of stuff going on in the dugout. They might miss some stuff, um, from a scouting standpoint. So, you know, being able to have those conversations after the game with our coaches and, you know, it's, it's been very, uh, I think it's been a very good, uh, dynamic to be able to come in. And like I said, you're not trying to tell them how to do their job. You're just, I, I like to view myself as just almost like an assistant or an asset to them on the coaching side. And then obviously my main job is like the player development and, or I'm sorry, the uh, player evaluations and getting our players right from a scouting standpoint, but, you know, also being able to have a conversation with, with our coaches is, is extremely important. Mark, go ahead. Yeah, I was, uh, Jonathan, I was, uh, Wondering, like, who do you answer to? Who do you send your reports to? Um, yeah, so so I have, uh, I guess you would say, probably uh, three bosses, I guess. Um, our, our pro scouting director, um, our farm director, and then our senior director of player development is kind of who I, who I frequently talk to. Um, you know, and I think, you know, each conversation is probably a little bit different as far as the information that is needed by, you know, each department head, um, you know, from the, from the scouting standpoint, I think our pro director wants to know, you know, he's trying to also, you know, assess with our guys in the office, our guys in R and D, all that stuff, like what our own internal players value would be when it comes time to trade players. Um, our farm director, 
he's kind of more, you know, what's the, what's the intent? What's the fundamentals? Are we playing good baseball? Is there anybody who's in a mental slump, you know, stuff like that. And then our senior director and AGM, um, you know, he's kind of more big picture. So, you know, my reports go to everybody in the front office, my day-to-day conversations mostly revolve around those three department heads. Um, and just trying to fill in the blanks for, you know, for those guys that, you know, aren't out, we try and stagger it where we're not all at the same affiliate at the same time. So we're getting multiple looks each night on different teams, but in constant communication. So um, it's a pretty unique role because it's not really scouting. It's not really player development, but you know, you enter, you interact with, with both of those departments. I think it's a really uh, valuable system. Yeah, really. Yeah, it really is. Some of the organizations I've been with, we did similar stuff. Uh, I know some organizations don't do too much of it, but I think that, like Will said, you know, if you don't know your own players, you know, you can have some problems with people you end up trading. Um, It's happened over time. You can look through history of baseball and seeing people that were traded that became MVPs or Cy Youngs, and you go, gosh, that team could have really used that guy. Why, why did they give him up? You know, I mean, sometimes maybe the GM felt like it needed a push, you know, to, to get over the hump and they had to do something. Um, some old scouts that I talked to, I remember uh, one of the guys told me one time when I first got in the game, he said, you know, Mark, when you have a chance to win, you don't let anything stop you. You develop if you're trading away your best prospect in a ball, you uh, you do it. Um, but you know the games change now, so you know those kind of things. Uh, top prospects in your organization are probably even more valuable than they used to be. Yeah, and I I think to your point too, like and and this is where I kind of see you know the the real value in my job is. Um, you know, if at the end of the day, you're going to go and make a trade for just pick your favorite all-star major league player, right? Like you're going to have to give up one of your top prospects and everybody knows that. And if that guy ends up being good, you as an organization don't look bad. Everybody knows why you made that deal. Everybody knows why that player was included because of the talent you got back. To me, it's like the the ones and particularly now with all the analytical information, all the performance data, everything, by the time these guys get to high A, you know, when scouting and analytics match up, that's usually a pretty good player. And there's enough data, there's enough scouting looks, but it's like, you know, your complex league guys or your Dominican summer league guys, if you don't know those guys and you go out and get a rental, you know, middle reliever and you give up one of those guys who has like serious upside, and, you know, in four years, they're batting, you know, three hole and you know, they got an 850 OPS or whatever it might be like that. That's the deal that comes back to bite you because it's like you you really didn't get a lot of value for your major league team, but you gave up a lot of future value in that prospect. And I think that's that's like the really, really fun part of my job is being able to like lean back on my amateur scouting roots a little bit and like really try and project these guys forward. And make sure that we're not giving up high value talent for, you know, obviously major league players are high value in any capacity. But, you know, when you start looking at the longevity of sustainability in an organization, if you can hold on to high talent players, um, the longer you have those guys, the better. But it's not the huge trade that, you know, is necessarily where you're trying to find the value because you know why those players were given up. It's, It's the lesser deals. Is there a difference with how you view the game from one role, amateur scouting, professional scouting, and now special assignment scout? Have you have you altered the way you view it? And what are kind of the things you honed in on in each one of those roles? Um, yeah, so I think that in I think scouting is scouting. Um, the way that I look at it is, you know, as as an amateur scout, it's your job to identify talent and skill. And, you know, a lot of times tools will trump skill at the younger ages because players are unrefined. They haven't had a lot of professional coaching. They, you know, cold weather state guys haven't played a lot of games. So you're kind of looking for tools. And when you look for tools, it's like, okay, what does this guy possess that will allow him to play in the big leagues? And it's almost like you're giving every benefit of the doubt to the player at that point because, you know, 
they're a piece of clay that you hope you can mold as an organization. Um, I kind of take that philosophy as well. Like when I'm looking at, like I said, the complex league, obviously the Dominican summer league, because uh, those players down there are essentially the demographic of what high school players are in America. Um, and even like low A, some guys in high A age dependent. And then as you start to get further into these guys' careers, it becomes, okay, like what tools do they have to translate into playable skills in the game? And what can they not do that will limit their value in the major league? So it's almost like a, a polar opposite where at the younger ages, amateur scouting, low level minor leagues, you're trying to project forward. And as you get to the upper levels, you're, you're literally just trying to look at what makes this guy not a utility player and an up down guy. What makes this guy a utility player and not an everyday guy and trying to, you know, kind of, kind of work your way through that. God, well, you had, you wanted to add, you know, just to add to that, you know, one of the things, uh, as you talked about, as, as scouts identify what a player can do. Um, you know, I was told when I signed back in 1977, the reason I was drafted and signed was because that scout believed I could pitch in the big leagues. So they accentuated the things I could do and made me the best at those things. And I see a lot of organizations, it seems to me the better organizations target what players can do and accentuate that to make them the best big league player they can possibly be. And if, and if a third tool or a third pitch rises to the occasion, the player becomes even better and better. And I think Tampa does that. I don't cover their organization but I saw them a bunch this spring and was very impressed with their pitchers. They might only had two pitches, but they were able to command them. They understood really well how to sequence them. And I, I, I think the most successful organizations target what the players can do instead of changing them all completely around and never targeting things that are truly going to make them consistent big league players. Does that make sense? Completely. Yeah. I think it definitely does. You know, I, you know, I came, I was writing down some notes while I was listening to Jonathan. You know, I know during, uh, you know, do you ever look at things or make suggestions on position changes for a player? Uh, yeah, I do. Because, you know, this is where I've seen, I always laugh because I've been in the game a long time and I see teams, they, Let's say they have a shortstop that's young, that's under a multi-year contract. They've got another shortstop in the minor leagues who's going to be a great player. And uh, they they end up dealing him. You know, maybe they have to. Maybe it's one of those deals you have to give something to get something. But they deal the guy without thinking, well, you know, the next year that guy could be your second baseman and you'd have two star players. Uh, and they give away that kid, and he ends up being a star shortstop or another position for another team. Um, sometimes I think people get short-sighted in, on what they look at in a player. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think, you know, I think the success that Tampa and the Dodgers have had with these multi-position everyday guys has, has changed how um, the industry probably views value in position players. Um, I think you see more and more – uh, teams going to, to your point, like the shortstop that's really good, but is blocked at the major league level, you know, and say he's in double A, they're getting that guy games at second base. They're getting that guy games in center field. Um, you know, I mean, I, I scouted Chris Taylor when he was at, you know, the university of Virginia and he was a shortstop there, but he was super athletic and, you know, he, he was kind of a, a baseball rat and, you know, really knew how to play the game. And, and honestly, I was probably light on him. I didn't give him enough credit for, you know, the, the baseball acumen and intelligence that he had and still has, but like you look at him and I mean, he can play anywhere on the field and it becomes like super valuable to roster construction and everything. So yeah, to your point, like instead of just being so quick to, to deal a guy because he's blocked at the major league level, I do like the creativity in, in pushing guys out of their comfort zone and, you know, in the minor leagues, like, you know, it's, it's a great time to learn. It's a great time for the organization to see what they actually have. It's a great time to, you know, really kind of 
get the full picture of the player. Some guys are, are very good in the dirt and they can't read a ball off the bat in the outfield. And it's good to know that at a, at a younger age than an older age. And, you know, when you start getting into, you know, options and, you know, all that different stuff. So, um, no, to your point, I, I think that it's, it's very valuable to, you know, ask guys to move around a little bit and, and see who your, you know, who your versatile guys are. Cause you never know where that might end up in the big leagues based on what roster you have up there. So. Hey, Jonathan, we're watching a lot of adjustments with the catching position lately. And I mean, if to talk about it as much as you can, but there seems to be a, a, uh, a drive to do the, a lot of the one knee catching all the way down to youth levels uh, up to the bigs. Are you seeing that in your organization? Do you guys promote it? Um, how, how do you guys work with that particular uh, aspect? Um, yeah, I, I think you see it in every organization. Um, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's a copycat industry. Um, you know, there was obviously some success from, from some teams where guys were stealing strikes and it gives the umpire a better view and, and different stuff like that. I, I do think that there's a right way and a wrong way to teach it. Um, I'll be the first to admit when I first saw it, I was like very anti one knee. Um, you know, and again, like one of the, one of the cool aspects of my role is I get to, you know, actually talk to our guys who are teaching it. And, you know, once it was explained to me, it made a lot more sense. And, you know, I think that there's a, there's a specific, uh, mobility profile in the catchers that it becomes very advantageous to go to that. Um, I think that the good organizations allow, you know, they allow their catchers to kind of do what works best for them. Um, you know, you'll see some guys that maybe are, they just can't get out of the one knee quick enough to, to get throws off the second base. And those guys are more traditional setup. Um, you know, they'll go one knee with nobody on, but then runner gets on and it's a more traditional setup for those guys. Um, but then within the same organization, you'll see another guy who's actually pretty good at getting out of that, out of that one knee set up. And, and those guys are, you know, those guys are one knee all the time. So, um, I think anytime you can avoid cookie cutter, um, I think that's really good, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that as, as things become more in vogue at the major league level, it's going to continually, it's going to be a five year, you know, cycle, but it'll get to the amateur levels as well. And you know, the other thing. Oh, yeah. But I think like the big thing for me and you know, I remember listening to uh, I think it was Joey Votto on MLB Network talking about like launch angle when that was first coming out. And just talked about like the ability to know where your barrel is before you can start trying to teach guys launch angle. And I think like, you know, as I've been around youth and amateur baseball, you're, you're trying to teach 11 and 12 year olds launch angle. and They have no strength yet to even be able to like get their barrel through the zone consistently on the same plane so if they don't know where their barrel is they can't execute launch angle properly and yeah so i think like that's the fear is you're you're dealing with grown men who literally train this stuff every single day you know hours and hours a day to get to where they are with man strength a lot of like a foundation of you know pure baseball fundamentals to be able to lean on that now we're taking these advanced approaches advanced concepts and trickling them down to to young you know kids that really aren't necessarily physically ready to handle that yeah i'm gonna have you counsel me for a sec then we're gonna transition to will i'm 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 still where you were when you first saw the one knee catching share with me some of the things that were told to you to help you see it with more of an open mind yeah, I just think, you know, for me, it, it, my my thought was that it was very landlocked and guys had no mobility. And, you know, I'm not going to go into a ton of detail just because I think like, you know, our guys have a really good understanding. But basically, the way that it was explained to me is there are certain ways that you can get into that setup that actually give you more mobility, um, put you in a better position to block and then allow you to actually um get out of the shoot just a, it, at the same pace as you would on a traditional setup compared to, you know, the one knee, um, you know, and put you in a good position. So like I said, it, it, it took me, took me a, probably about a week of watching it every single day to, to kind of really buy in, but I'm a pretty open-minded person. I'm not afraid to admit when I've been wrong on something. And like I said, the way it was explained to me and then watching it, 
it made a lot of sense. And again, it comes down to is the is the person that you're putting in that position capable of handling it? And if they're not, like you have to be able to, it can't be, this is what we're doing. So you need to be able to like have some freedom within that. Yeah, mostly. Will, go ahead. Yeah, I, you know, as an old fart, and I'm very cognizant that the game was always evolving. Uh, the one, the, you know, to go into my tirade on, on, on the one knee catching is that um, the game is evolving. They're now stealing more bases. And you mentioned earlier, there's a lot of guys who can't get off their ass and throw anybody out anymore because they are on one knee. Um, the number of pass balls that are declared wild pitches, I will call it a conspiracy theory because I go in and I look at games that I see and every time a ball gets past the catcher, it's a wild pitch, it seems like. And there's balls that hit hit off a guy's gloves where they just can't move quick enough to, to, to get to it. I see a lot more balls getting by catchers. And, and, and one of the reasons they went to one knee was to frame better, I believe, in the beginning. And... When we go to an automated strike zone, framing will have no impact at all. So I just think what I watched for my whole life with catchers and Tony Pena was able to lay, you know, Mark Mark had Tony. I had Tony in the Dominican. He could sit on his leg so flexible, but never did it with men on base. Um, you know, but he and, and, and it's freakish athleticism as well, but. Just, you know, overall, um, I think that, as you said, it, it's a copycat thing that everybody's doing now. But when we see the failure to throw out runners because stolen base is becoming more prevalent, and when the automated strike zone comes in, is it going to be worth, worth it at all? You know, like when I did my low A ball coverage in the Florida State League, the catchers were on one knee trying to steal strikes. It doesn't work. Yeah. I, <laughs> you, you know, you can't frame it up. So, um, you know, like I said, I, I see a lot of balls get by catchers a lot more now on one knee than I ever saw. And I know it's anecdotal and I know the numbers probably won't back me up because everything to me is declared a wild pitch now in baseball when it gets by a catcher. Yeah, and, and again, like to your point, you know, Pena, the freakish mobility could do just, you know, crazy stuff back there. I, I, I think, you know, the automated strike zone stuff is very interesting because, you know, particularly for like the draft now, I would say, you know, and when you're looking at lower level catching acquisitions, like, do, I mean, obviously it's in AAA. I just saw AAA. You know, you got the challenge system. It, it, it actually generates some excitement in the stands, which is which is very interesting. Um, but, you know, when when you're talking about, you know, the, the catch and throw guy who can't necessarily hit, but he's really, really valuable from from a defensive standpoint and, you know, leading a pitching staff and knowing the right pitches to put, you know, or the right fingers to put down and pitch selection, you know, th- does that guy still carry value because, you know, Obviously, the minor leagues is a little bit of, of trial for uh, what they want to do in the big leagues. Um, they've obviously had some success here with the pitch clock and stuff like that. Is the ABS system next? And then, you know, what does that do to the profile of the catcher? For me, you know, the, the human element, the pitcher-catcher relationship is so important that I do think that you're still going to need guys that give a good target. You're still going to need guys who can catch the ball because no pitcher wants to stand out there and watch a catcher just clank balls left and right. Subconsciously, it makes you think that you're missing your spot. So you're going to need somebody who can receive the baseball. You're going to need somebody who can block, and you're going to need somebody who knows how to navigate a lineup. So, um, you know, I think all of those things are, are very important. So, um, you know, but it is it is an interesting time because if the ABS comes, it does kind of change the – the overall profile of the catcher. Mark, go ahead. Yeah, you know, the, the thing that I always get caught up in when I, I watch a lot of major league games now, um, I see guys sit up off the plate in, in, a, in a real fine position um, at the wrong counts. And, and then I take, in, I take into consideration the command of the pitcher 
that I've been watching for three innings. And I go, this guy doesn't have good enough command that for you to set that fine, particularly early in the count and you run him into deep counts. And then I see on the other hand, I'll see people who set up in the middle on everybody. And I'm going, man, I guess this guy's a general area stuff guy, um, usually back bullpen guys. Um, and I do know that pitchers like, they tell catchers where they like to set up, especially if they throw off the glove or off the hitter. It depends on which target their initial target is. But I, I, think, I think that, you know, we get a lot of, of teaching with, you know, how to receive the ball, how to set up, um, some game calling, um, you know, a lot of aspects to catching. I don't think they pay we pay enough as an industry, pay enough attention to where the catcher's setting up, especially in particular counts. I, yeah. I, I very rarely heard a coach talk to a catcher, unless it was a pitching coach, about, hey, you're setting up way too fine. You know, your, pay, your, your tempo is very slow. You can't maintain a rhythm. Um, you know, a lot of aspects that, that other coaches don't seem to have the value in that pitching coaches do. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I, I think one of the interesting things, I went to a, uh, like a pitching conference this offseason, and there is several major league pitching coaches that spoke. And kind of the common theme, Mark, honestly, was, you know, that they were trying to set up two uh narrow or too specific the spots and you know we have the capability and technology now where you can literally like identify where a catcher's glove in the center of the mitt is located at setup and then where the pitch location ends up and i mean it was it was crazy to me like the average pitch in the major leagues last year missed its intended location by nine inches that's half the plate so you know, so more and more teams, I feel like, you know, are, are going to almost, like you said, the middle-middle setup, knowing that if that's the intended location with how much movement guys have to their fastballs now, the ability to manipulate sliders and sweepers and all this other stuff, like set up middle-middle, it's never going to end up there. And, you know, just give them a more wide target to throw to. And to your point, like, you know, it's predominantly guys who have like really good stuff. You know, you still see your your pitch ability guys that definitely want those guys set up the very specific areas. But, you know, as we've gotten away from pitch ability and execution and gone more stuff, um, you know, one, obviously stuff gives you more margin for error, but two, you know, it comes with less command. So kind of going middle, middle has been uh, something. And, and to reference Tampa, like, you know, if you watch, if you watch Glass now pitch, Glass now has elite stuff. I mean, those guys literally just set up middle middle. Well, you know, I, I, go ahead, Will. No, I was just going to say I've been saying that for a while. Is with the lack of command, I would probably sit in the middle of the plate because nobody ever really hits the glove anymore. And if you sit in the middle and you're missing, and and I I always thought that it was somewhere. And, you know, six to eight inches that guys were missing the glove by on almost every pitch. So, uh, you know, if you can keep it on the plate, um, you know, you know, the only problem, you know, I guess, uh, well, you know, it, it, it's really not a reach because if you're sitting in the middle, you know, the worst is when a guy is sitting inside and the guy misses 17 inches and it's a strike. But because the catcher had a reach, the umpire thought it was a ball. So you don't get the pitch. But you know, the, the sad part of that whole thing is is it takes away from your ability to pitch. Because if you have if you have that poor a command and you're a starting pitcher in particular. Right. Um my classes on calling pitches and setting guys up and stuff are mute. Because if a guy's sitting in the middle and we're just going with stuff, then it's Oh, you had a good day today. They missed the pitches you were throwing. Why did they hit you yesterday? They hit you yesterday because the pitches you were throwing were running them right into where you were going. Um, you know, it'd be interesting to take years ago because, you know, us old guys, we always like to talk about, well, they had better command. I don't know if we did or not, but I think there were more guys because it was less impact on velocity that had better command. And you talk about nine inches is what they came up with. And it'd be interesting to go back on videos 
back 10, 20 years ago right. and see how bad the misses were. Well, you know, I, I, I would, I would pretty much say they'd be, it would be, it would might only be three inches, but it would be less. Uh, Jonathan, I'll ask you a tough question. You don't have to answer. Um, how, how much do your pitching coaches or do you see pitching coaches now actually work on execution in bullpens versus just working on stuff and shape and spin and all the other things? Um, I mean, I, 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 I think that it's, it's pitcher dependent. Um, I do think that there, there certainly are, I mean, we've, we've gone to a little bit more of like, we'll have bullpens that are just execution bullpens. There's no track man set up. It's, it's literally just, it's an old school bullpen. It's pitcher, catcher, yeah. pitching coach. Yeah. And it's an execution bullpen. Um, you know, there might be cameras set up, you know, the, the edutronics and stuff just to kind of see how the ball's coming off of their fingers and stuff like that. But um, so I think like from that standpoint, we've definitely moved a little bit past just, you know, the, the pitching lab sort of set up where it's just track man and data driven. I, I do think that, you know, we have um, specific bullpen set up for guys where it's just execution. They don't know how hard they're throwing. They don't know what their vertical movement is. They don't know what the spin is, you know, anything like that. So um, I think that, you know, for me, it's all about blending both, you know um, I do think that, you know, pitching has always been art for me. You know, the the sequencing, setting hitters up, the ability to navigate through a lineup multiple times, know how you got the guy out in the first inning when he comes up in the fourth inning, like, you know, all that stuff. I think that there's definitely a scientific aspect to pitching now. And, you know, as, as, a, as a guy who pitched from 2002 to 2009, um, I certainly wish I had some of the science. You know, I would have loved to have known what my best pitch was. Um, I would have loved to have known what the pitch profiles were. But I think, you, you know, you can't lose sight of the art that is pitching as well. And, you know, that that's where pitching coaches become very, very instrumental is, you know, equipping these guys with, you know, the objective information, which is your track man, you know, all that different, you know, Hawkeye now, all that different stuff. But also being able to put in the subject of knowing the player, knowing the personality. I think one of the one of my favorite conversations in this role that I've had was with you know, one of our coaches played at a really high level, got to the big leagues for a little bit. And we had a morning meeting a couple of years ago and, you know, he like, we were just standing out on the field, one of our backfields and we have a track man unit out there. And he just said, he's like, man, he's like, you really speak the analytical language well. And I was like, well, you have to in the scouting side in particular, you know, to be able to relay some of this information, you just have to know kind of what each metric means so that, you know, you can kind of piece it together. And he just said something like, man, like sometimes I wonder like if I need to learn it more because sometimes I feel like the game is passing me by. And I said, well, I said, my best advice to you would be to just understand what each thing means and then understand the why behind the what. And if you don't understand the why behind the what, like all the analytical information, track man, Hawkeye, all that stuff, you know, maybe Hawkeye with the motion capture stuff's a little bit more advanced, but we'll just take track man for now it tells you what's happening. It doesn't tell you why it's happening or how to fix it or why it's happening and how to make sure, you know, it sustains if it's a, if it's a good outcome. So, and I just said to him, I said like that thing up there, that box can't tell you the why or the how, and until it grows a, a brain, a soul and a heart, it also can't tell you the when, and the when is the most important when to approach a player with what you know, when they're vulnerable enough to be able to access their inner workings to get them to adjust. And, you know, like I said, the science is great. The science is great at telling you what, but like you still need really good human beings, human connections. And, you know, honestly, like, like I said, artists to be able to get to the nitty gritty of the, why is this happening and how do we fix it? Two, like two, that. That was well two, said. Yeah, very well said. Two quick follow-ups. Um, uh, the strings, do you guys utilize those strike zone strings? We do, yeah. Okay, yeah, because I, I, I don't see it in a lot of places. And 
I know Mark was a big proponent of it. I was as an Oriole player coming up. Um, Explain those, Will. It adds to, I know we're you know, it's, it's, it, it's a visual strike zone that you have to throw your bullpens. And, um, you know, you know, you can split it. Mark, with Colorado, we had it in quadrants, right? Yeah, we had it over an entire uh, bullpen layout. Yeah. yeah, and I, you know... And, you know, I spoke to Rick Peterson. He he just wanted the bottom line because he wanted his guys to throw downhill as much as possible, which is something that's kind of lost in the game. But I think it's coming back as more guys are starting to throw sinkers and realize you can still get guys out down in the strike zone. You know, then it went to the point where they used, some teams wanted only the top line. Yeah, yeah. So They were so impressed with the with – the sprint spin rate fastballs that they wanted guys to learn how to use those above the, I think there's a, we used to have different segments on different pitchers. Yeah. Um, I will say this, that um, when I was with the Rockies in charge of the pitching, we, we saw these guys coming out of college, some out of high school that were already up to speed on a lot of the terminologies of the analytics and all the machinery. And so we had to teach all our pitching coaches, exactly what these guys were saying and what they were looking for. And particularly, you know, higher draft picks that are out of college that have, you know, they've had their own lab at their college. And this was before major league teams had many labs. Um, So we had to learn, learn that. And I I think though, the one thing you have to be careful with, uh, with that part of analytics, because every kid, it doesn't matter if a kid's 17 years old out of high school, he's going to want to use it. And, and you have to teach them that you have to learn and earn command first. You know, you give it to guys as they get better command, because when they have better command, they can get a lot more out of their spin rates or their axis and all the other things than they can before they have command. You know, you don't, you don't put the horse before the car. I mean, the cart before the horse. You've got to learn command because that builds your rhythm, your timing, your balance to where you start to deliver, uh, start to develop a good delivery that allows you to command the ball. And then once you start commanding the ball, you can go to both halves of the plate, maybe to the top or bottom of the strike zone. Then you start to see uh, where maybe a pitch shape could help you. But I think this is another trickle down because we've got kids that are 12 years old that their parents are buying all the machinery. Right. Uh, a lot of these uh, camps, cat- academies uh, and camps, academies all have and camps are advertising that they have all this stuff. It's ridiculous. They're, they're as, as your point before, they're not strong enough and they don't have good enough command to use the stuff anyway. Well, that's, you know, Mark, I think so many times on our show, we've had pitchers, catchers, you know, we're chasing the finished product without building the foundation that gives us the finished product that you just talked about, the balance, rhythm, timing, the repeatability, that all of a sudden now now your spin axis, your spin rate, your command, all those things go up when you're doing it right. Um, and, and, and that's like one of the one of the things that, that that I noticed just watching a lot of games every day and watching bullpens is that, you know, the delivery's bad, the command, the ball's all over the place. You know, I'll, I'll hear an attaboy on a sweeper that lands in the right, the left-handed batter's box, you know, because the shape was what they wanted. And it's, it's not a good pitch. It was a ball out of the hand. But um, the, the, that just brought up to something to my mind. Um, and this is always when damage happens when the pitcher in a major league game is 0 2, 1 2. Um, he's in a position to put the guy away. Maybe there's a couple of runners on, there's two outs where he's got to make pitches. And I'll see a catcher set up and I go, well, Yeah, well, you should be on the outside part of the plate. He's got him set up for this pitch. And the catcher's setting up thigh high. Right. And then the guy executes the pitch. The ball's going right to the glove, and the guy hits it out of right field. And I go, does the catcher not realize that that's really hittable if it's thigh high instead of knee high? You know, it's like they have no – and then I'm sure in a lot of cases they go back to the dugout and say that was a good pitch. No, it wasn't a good pitch. You were set up wrong, and he hit the target. 
you know, I, I saw that last night in a triple A game. The guy threw two fastballs by a hitter and uh, the catcher just sat on the outer half, gave him a mid thigh uh, thing for a hanging slider. And the guy hit a two run homer to win, to, to end up winning the game in the eighth inning uh, for his team. And, you know, I think back of what Cal Ripken Sr. used to teach catchers, throw some dirt on the home plate and say, hey, put it down there. I want this breaking ball, strike the ball in the dirt. It's 0-2, I'll block it. And, you know, I I think we were better just with some of those simplicity things. But uh, Well, they, they, don't, they don't seem to understand, and we've gone through this in other shows too, the importance – of what type pitch you throw and where you throw it in different counts. You just right. it's like every pitch is the same. It's like no, it isn't. You look at look at the look at the box score every day, and you'll see two outs, two men on, and a guy hits a three run home run. You go back there and look, and see where where the command he had. Where was he throwing the ball? Why did that happen with two outs? You start pitching much finer and much tougher. And if you're not able to do that, it's tough to be a major league pitcher. Right. Now, uh, Jonathan, I wanted to follow up. You mentioned artists. Uh, you were, you guys had Picasso in camp all spring. Uh, you want to uh, talk a little bit about uh, your big league pitching coach's uh, brother that was there? Uh Sure. Yeah. He, he was, he was awesome to listen to awesome to be around. I think he, you know, one of the coolest things was to, was to kind of hear him talk about the importance of all the the little things that go on in a game. And, you know, um, let's tell everybody who it is. is. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Great. Greg Maddox. And, you know, obviously Mike is his brother and, and our major league pitching coach, but you know, it was, it was really cool to hear his kind of take on the importance of fielding your position, the important, the importance of backing up bases. It was, you know, I, I think like having it come from somebody with his pedigree um, resonates with, with everybody that's in camp um, players, staff, you know, if it was important enough for this guy to do all the little things, right. Um, you know, it, it should be important for everybody in the game. And, you know, to me, as I go around and Mark, you know, you reference college programs having labs and, you know, markerless, you know, motion capture and force plates and all this stuff like you can go buy that, you know, any organization, any major league franchise can go and invest in that and buy that and, you know, hire biomechanists. And and trust me, like I know our biomechanists and they're great at what they do. And it's important. It's a, it's a piece of the pie. Um, to me, like the competitive advantage now is how well do you execute between the lines? And I think that was kind of Greg's big, big sticking point is like everything that happens on that field, whether you think it's important or not, it's important. How you hold runners, you know, how you field your position, how cleanly do you get over to first base? Like how do you execute pitches confidence? Like, you know, the one thing that, you know, has stood out, just in like hearing those guys talk a little bit is like, you know, let's start talking about wins. Like wins matter. It's about winning baseball games. And and to me, that's, you know, one of our, one of our scouts who's been around for a long time. He's been with us for almost, I think he might be, have been with us for over 30 years now, but he, he says, he's like, baseball's still 27 outs. Like you have to get 27 outs and, and be, you know, leading to win the game. Like that's never going to change. That's still the goal. And, you know, and we talk a lot and, you know, his thing is, you know, you could take Skippy peanut butter, put a new label on it, you know, change the design a little bit, but what's inside the jar is still Skippy peanut butter. And, you know, and I, and I think that's, that's where we're at with baseball. Like the goal is still to have a lead when you get your 27th out, like that should be the goal every night. And, you you know, Go ahead. No, go, no, go ahead. I, I was just, I just, I, and I shared this with you, Jonathan, and I think I may have shared it with Mark. I talked to one of our scouts that was covering an organization and they, they had the piggyback system set up with their starters. And they always had, uh, since the season started, the same five guys were the starters, but they only went four innings. 
So they never were in a game to get a W next to their name. And we were all pitchers. Psychologically, when you got a W next to your name and you got a good ERA and you're pitching well, don't you build on that? And doesn't that make you a more confident, a more competent, a better pitcher? Like, I'm appalled at how many guys have six and seven ERAs that have good stuff, you know, they don't have any wins. They don't have anything. What do you build on? What do you yeah, build I, on from a mentality standpoint? Uh, it, you, you know, and Greg Maddox, he built on W's. He had a lot of W's next to his name and a lot of gaudy low ERAs. So, I, you, you know, like the analytic people want to say that, you know, those numbers don't matter. They're all Ill, irrelevant or whatever. Just like game-winning RBIs, got, you know, guys don't ever get big hits. No, there are a lot of guys who get big hits. It's 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 it, it's one of those lost things. And you know, your your older scouts, just like us, you know, you still got to get twenty-seven outs, and you want to be on the W end of the game at the end. Yeah, and that's a you know, you talk about the psyche and and stuff of, of a pitcher, and and this is conversations I've had with some of our guys, you know, more on the hitting side where, you know, strikeouts don't matter. Strikeouts, you know, are the same as any other out. And to me, like I give the the example of, okay, well, put yourself in the pitcher's shoes, right? Like you're a starting pitcher in the first inning, you punch out the first three guys to start the game because, you know, guys are taking big swings and trying to drive the ball and you miss their bats. Like, how do you feel walking off the mound? Like you feel pretty, pretty good. Like, oh man, I got my good stuff today. Like, these guys can't touch me. I said, now, like, let's fast forward or let's, you know, play devil's advocate that same first inning. You go one, two, three, but you go like 115 mile an hour ground out to third base, start the game. Next guy flies out to the warning track to center field. And the next guy, like, you know, literally like hits a line drive that, you know, the right fielder doesn't even move. And it like takes him back a step. Walking off the mound, you, you went one, two, three in both innings. But, like, you walk off the mound after that inning, and you're like, oh, man, these guys aren't missing anything tonight. I said, so, like, you, you can't say that a strikeout is the same as every other out. Maybe statistically it is. But when you start talking about, again, the human element and the aspect of, of you know, psychology that, you know, plays a big part in baseball. I mean, you know, we were all pitchers, like – pitchers are pretty insecure. Like it's just kind of how it is, you know? So like anytime you give that pitcher security and confidence, that's not a good thing. If you're an offensive player, like, you know, so, so to me like that, that's my argument against that sort of thing. And just like, you know, the psychology of, you know, what's the ebb and flow in the game within the game. There's a lot of little games within the game that can't be quantified. And to me, like the, the more that we can bring those to light, I think the better you're going to have as far as performance in game when it matters. You know, one thing that comes to mind is the, uh, the Blake Snell world series game for Tampa where the Dodgers did not sniff a barrel swing. They had about 10 strikeouts. And when they took him out of that game, you knew the world series was over. You know, the, 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 the hitters were like, oh, my gosh, we got him out of the game. And, and he, you know, he was on a roll. He, he would have thrown a complete game shutout that day. Well, you know, so but here, here's what you hear now. You know, years ago, you would have never heard this comment. I gave my t- team a chance to win. I mean, when that first was stated some t- someplace in baseball, Somebody should have jumped down that guy's throat who said it. He said, no, 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 we win the game. We win the game. We don't put our team in a position to win the game. You win the game. You know, and, and the other thing is that, that uh, they have rules now with holds where guys can give up three runs and have a hold. Right. You know, like Will talks about the definition of confidence. Well, so the guy ends up with leading the league in holds. Well, you know, how many holds did he have where he gave up everybody's runs? The team just scored enough. You know, it's um, 
you know, we need to get, it's, it's all about com- uh, accountability. And we come up with these phrases and they pat the guy on the back and, and make him feel good in the wrong way. You know, that's the old uh, trophy for everybody thought. Now pat him on the back because you held him. Uh, you know, you got into the fifth inning and your team was ahead. You gave him a chance to win. Are you kidding me? That's, you know, that's really widening the play. Well, I think the, you know, to your point, Mark, I, I, you know, and I don't know how you change this. I, I almost feel like this starts with, you know, high school amateurs because the showcase circuits are set up where guys only go to, you know, these big events and they throw one or two innings yeah. and, you know, they never have to pitch themselves out of jams, they, you know, and then they play for these travel ball teams and the best in the country recruit players from all over and they carry 30 guys on the roster and, you know, it's, it's, it's a continued showcase, you know, and the, the advisors are talking to the coaches. My guy's only going to throw two innings on Tuesday and then he's done. And, you know, and they never have to work through, you know, they never have to work through games or work through um, adversity, even at the amateur level. So then, you know, they go to, if they're drafted right out of high school, the first adversity they really face is, you know, probably once they get to a full season and, you know, and even there, I mean, you know, every every organization has pitch counts for for their pitchers, and you know, rightfully so. I mean, you got guys who aren't developed, and you certainly don't want to throw them 150 pitches. Um, you know, but you know, I think I think getting guys and and putting guys in situations where they feel pressure and there's a chance that they might fail. Failure is okay. You know, like that's how you grow and learn. And you know, I think I think that at the end of the day, I think there's a little bit of of player performance versus player development throughout the game. Um, I think it's, it's very prevalent at the college level where, you know, pitching coaches or man or head coaches have to, you know, they call pitches for their pitchers. Catchers don't know how to call games when they get the pro ball, but you know, it's, it's to win games at the college level. And I get that that's how college coaches are paid and that's how they provide for their family. But, you know, it's now setting up a, a really uphill road, for a lot of these, you know, these guys when they enter pro ball where it's a totally different world, it's a different game. It's like, no, well, okay, you got you got runners on second and third and one out in the fourth inning. Like nobody's coming to get you. We're not rolling the inning. You gotta right. figure out how to get out of it. Jonathan, break um, that down. That's a good point. The player development versus player performance. I think that's a profound point right there. Just break that down a little bit further. Yeah. So I think, you know, I think um, you know, as as we kind of talked about a little bit earlier in, in the show you know, prospect value is probably at an all-time high within the industry. And, you know, I think that, you know, previously, every guy that was in your system when you were, you know, the, you know, well, just since I worked for the Rangers in the Rangers system, you viewed as, you know, we got to figure out how to, you know, get this guy to the major leagues as a Ranger. And, you know, if it meant that a guy was going to scuffle for a year and a half, but like coming on the backside of that was serious growth and, you know, different stuff like that. And it, you know, I think social media has played a, played an aspect. All these prospect rankings have certainly played a role in this too. You know, now it's like the expectation for players is it's not a five year, you know, journey. It's like, you know, you got a lot of money in the draft, you know, the team invested a lot of money, like you need to perform now. And I think that there's like this, this stigma with like, okay, like we're going to take one step back to go two steps forward. It's like, okay, well, how can we go two steps forward without taking a step back? And to me, it's like, you can't do that because guys have to learn. They have to fail. They have to grow from their failures and it's okay to fail. But, you know, and I get like, you know, the, the perception like I said, all these top 30 prospects, top 100 prospects in baseball, I mean, for the most part, you're not taking guys that, you know, are scuffling. Like, those guys aren't showing up on lists. So, you know, and general managers and owners, they, they look at these rankings and, you know, deals are made with, okay, like, I want one of their top six prospects. Okay. So, like, now, like, you're trying to push your players to perform so they show up on these lists. And to me, it's like at the detriment of the overall development of a player. Um, You know, when you sign an 18-year-old, you know, that same 18-year-old goes to college, 
And, you know, he's put into, you know, with maybe the right college coach, he's a midweek starter, then he's a Sunday starter, then he's a Friday start. And there's, there's development and there's some hiccups in there and, and they put him in low pressure situations. You're still dealing with the same emotional maturity just because you signed the guy and he's a professional pitcher now compared to a, a college pitcher. You still have the same emotional maturity in that same 18 year old kid. But now it's like magnified because they got money and they have to be on the top prospect list. Right. Darn right. Guys, we've, we've kept Jonathan here for over an hour. I know you guys got to get out to the, the ball fields and, and start to evaluating talent. Any last questions for Jonathan as we, we move forward? No, I really appreciate you coming on, Jonathan. Yeah. You had some great insights. Phenomenal. Yeah, uh, very good. No, this, yeah. was, this was a lot of fun. And, you know, just got to say thanks to my Uncle Will. Thanks to Mark Wiley. Um, you know, obviously I've known my uncle my whole life, but, you know, Mark has been uh, very influential in, in shaping me as a baseball person from the time I was probably first time I mentioned Mark was what, probably six or seven years old. So, um, you know, lots of, lots of eavesdropping in on conversations you're having with my dad and uncle at an early age and, you know, um, have always appreciated all the insight and advice and kind of, you know, mentoring you've given to me. So really appreciate it. I did. I, I did have one follow-up um, in your time with Greg Maddox. Uh, how, how well versed is he in modern analytics and data and, does, did, did he have any insight into things that he thought were beneficial that would have maybe made him even better? Um, you know, I, I didn't spend a lot of like one-on-one -on -one time with him. Some of the stuff that I overheard, I mean, he was very curious about what everything met, meant. Right. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, he, I'm pretty sure he made the statement, like, I, this is really cool. Like, I, I really would have liked to had this when I was playing. Um, you know, the biggest thing that, you know, he just kept talking about was like, you know, how does this help us win? How does this help us win? I mean, he, you know, he was very into like learning about it, understanding it, trying to understand what everything meant. And, you know, he's, you know, but like his big thing was like, okay, how do we win? How does this help us win? And that, yeah, and, and yeah. I think at the end of the day, that's the most important thing is how, it, whatever it is, whether it's old school, new school, how does it help a team win? Take, take, take the value and apply it to each individual. It's going to make them the best baseball player they can be. Yeah. And uh, understanding also that each kid has a different way of learning. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that analytics sometimes misses on is, you know, somebody might be a visual learner. Somebody might be a word learner. Somebody might be a video learner. Somebody might be a by feel learner on the field where you got to be able to feel things. So, um, you know, I think, you know, that that's a big part of, of, of integrating it and building that synergy between the two, two things that make your players the best they can be. Yeah. I think Kevin wrote a nice article yesterday, ball nine, Kevin Kernan, our, one of our co-hosts and founders of the, the network coaching Kern. He wrote a nice article and uh, he was, kind enough to, to quote me a ton at the end. And, you know, there's a big difference between data driven decisions and data informed decisions. And I think that's, that's, uh, that's the nuance that's, that's got to get grabbed on. That's, I think that's, that's what Greg Maddox would have been great at um, with that yeah. stuff. But yeah. uh, Jonathan, great. I, I think our audience got a treat today. I think, uh, you know, and this is us tooting your horn, not you tooting your own horn. We're talking to a future GM here. And I think our audience got smarter today. I know I did. Mark and Will, I always appreciate the guests you bring on because uh, there's special relationship that our audience can hear from the questions and in interaction and understand that baseball is about relationships. And you guys exude that amongst each other, but also with the guests that you bring on. And very fortunate you brought me into your fold as well. Go ahead, Will, you wanted to get one more. Yeah, just a, a, a couple quick Jonathan stories. Uh, Jonathan came to Canton in 1990 or 91. Both years he came, but uh, he would dress out every day and uh, sit in the dugout, uh, sit in the bullpen. Uh, and we had just put Tommy Kramer in the bullpen as our closer. And uh, Jonathan and him were playing playing uh, wiffle ball in the, <laughs> in the bullpen. And Jonathan slid into him and knocked him down. <laughs> he came limping up from the bullpen. <laughs> 
Luckily, luckily he didn't get seriously hurt, but you slid in. The, I don't know if you remember that, Jonathan. And, oh, and I, I remember it like it was yesterday. I mean, we were doing we were doing collisions at home plate, and I was running him over, and then he comes in to close the game, and his whole back is just covered in dirt. Oh, covered in. over in the bullpen. So, uh, and, and, and then then the other one was uh, Eric Bell had the video camera. You know, the starters we didn't have intern so this one starter was doing the video camera one was doing the radar gun the pitching chart the spray charts all that stuff and uh you put eye black all over the eyepiece and eric was sitting down in that little hole there by the stands and he put put his eye down on there and he'd look up in the stands looking at girls and he had the big black circle around Uh, we grew up in a clubhouse. Yeah, exactly. You know, you learn you learn a lot of good and bad things in the clubhouse. So. Oh yeah. <laughs> no, those, uh, those are great. I, I think, John, we're going to have to have you back on if you don't mind. Oh, no, sounds good. Love, love, it. love what yeah. you had to say. And well, thanks uh, for having all, me. Y'all, my our pleasure. Gosh, our audience. We have a very. I think we have a very smart audience, and our audience loves intelligent people when they come on. As I said, I think we're talking to a future GM here on our on our show today, and we appreciate you sharing all that information that you did. Our audience, 18,400 subscribers now. Download, listen, like, subscribe, rate, and review. We can keep providing you great content every week like they do here on A Day at the Yard, Common Sense Pitching with Wiley and Will. If you continue to battle those analytics of the podcast world like we do in baseball, Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher, hit us up on Facebook. Like I said, over 400 questions this morning. I'll get back to the individual one individual later today, and I'll get back to everybody privately. 72 countries, so you are global, Jonathan. If you weren't before, you are now. Grassroots all the way to MLB front offices. So we got the ear of the right people. All we're trying to do is build a better baseball IQ out there. And, guys, you do that every week, and we appreciate you for it. So with that, Day at the Yard Common Sense Pitching, Episode 195. Mark and Will, thank you so much for all you do for the network. And, Jonathan, thank you. Great thank job, you guys. guys. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you.